0: This is the Monday, September 19th, 2016 episode of The History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor where we harmonize sweet adeline on the east side west side things ain't like before there are tears in the eyes of the regular guys oh new york ain't new york anymore hello and welcome i'm your host dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Today, our time machine makes a return visit to the Gilded Age to check back in on Union Pacific Railroad tycoon Dr. Thomas C. Durant and his children, William and Ella. We first met the Durants in Sheila Meyer's novel, Imaginary Brightness, as they had their comfortable lives in London, shattered by an economic panic, what we today call a depression. Sheila Myers is an associate professor at Cayuga Community College. Her latest novel and second in the Durant Family Trilogy is Castles in the Air. William Durant is now head of the family, but lacking his father's killer instinct and business skills, William struggles to preserve the diminished family fortune in the wilderness of upstate New York's Adirondack Mountains during a period of incredible economic and social upheaval. You can follow Sheila on Twitter at Sheila M. Myers or visit her online at www.durantstory.com. And you can listen to her previous interview on imaginary brightness at historyauthor.com or wherever you're hearing the sound of my voice. Okay, now that we've climbed on board the train and we're settling into our Pullman car's plush button seats... Let's head back to the Gilded Age and visit the Durant family of Castles in the Air. I'm on the line with novelist Sheila Myers, author of Castles in the Air, a Durant Family Saga. Sheila, welcome back to the History Author Show. Thank you. I've been looking forward to the book for a long time. Thank you for following up so strongly on Imaginary Brightness Before we discuss Castles in the Air, tell us a little bit about that book one, Imaginary Brightness. Where has it taken you since our last conversation? And what did you learn through that journey of the first book?
1: Well, I learned a few things, just especially from people that commented or reviewed my first book. And one was that there were certain affinity to characters in Imaginary Brightness. So I tried to Make sure that I kept those characters in story and kept them alive. So, particularly the uh, Lawrence family and the the Native American family that shows up in Imaginary Brightness. And I know that some people are disappointed by that I did not include the present day story in Castles in the Air. And Imaginary Brightness had a current day story with a scientist that's working at one of the field stations, which was a at one time the great camp that William built. And I did not include her, Avery, in the second book. And I changed sort of the narrative style as well. But I did that because it was just very difficult to try to come up with another storyline for a present day story as well as you know, the past story, the actual story. So I learned also that it was an easier write, and this is for anyone who's writing out there, it made it much less challenging to have two narrative structures, which was William's story and Ella's story and their points of view versus several different points of view, which I did in Imaginary Greatness.
0: Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. The saw wet owl, you have a lot of present things. And I remember when we spoke the first time that I complimented you on how seamlessly you did move back and forth between the two eras, because it's not easy, not only writing it for you to keep track of it, but for the reader, you have to give them little clues. For instance, you'd start a chapter or a section and you'd say, oh, he reaches for his pocket watch. Well, okay. That subtly sets the reader back to the time Or you would say she took out her plastic bag was another one of your examples, a Ziploc bag for her samples. Well, that's in the present. So you have to think about those little things. You can't just rely on putting the date there. Right. It must be rewarding though, to know people miss them, that they miss those characters.
1: Yeah, I mean, I had it was interesting. The people that said that were disappointed, I didn't include Avery and Jake were mostly women. But men, it seems like when I've been giving a lot of talks, actually, this summer, I gave four different talks about my book up in the Adirondacks. And say over half the audience was men. So I'm trying to figure out what my demographic is.
0: (laughs) Well, it's broad. It's broadly appealing.
1: Yeah, the uh, Avery story has a lot of science in it and a lot of interesting facts about the owl because she's doing research, obviously. But there's also this love story. So yeah, I really couldn't figure that one out. Who is really missing Avery and Jake? But it made it so much easier to write the second book to just have two points of view and i think was also easier i think it flowed better in terms of following the story the third book is going to be even more challenging but we'll get to that later
0: i think it's a great lesson for people who are thinking about writing themselves to know when to take criticism when to take what people want and when to go with The book you want to write. And that's very much the feeling you get from this. I hope people get a little bit of what you're like and what you're about from listening to us today. But for you and I, having exchanged over email and talked already once, I know that you have a vision for this and where you want to serve the readers and figure out who they are. You also want to make sure you're still telling your story. You're not going to put zombies in it just because 10 (laughs) people come to you and and say that, you know, which would be pretty cool up there in the Adirondacks, but, you know, but you still have to know. And I think that's such a hard thing to do, especially writing in a vacuum somewhat, you know, for any writer, even when you have a writer group, that's something you're doing on your own. There's not a lot of constant feedback. You ultimately have to listen to that little voice. And the Adirondacks, by the way, is a great place to do that because it's nice and quiet.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I know. I I spent a week up there at a cabin, actually Minnie's cabin. When I finished Castles in the Air, the first draft, I remember pressing that return button for the last sentence. And I was up in Minnie in the cabin that shows up in Imaginary Greatness as Minnie's cabin. I spent about a week up there writing. It was really awesome. And solitude to some degree, you know, I know what you mean about working in a vacuum because you want that feedback, but there is something about solitude when you're writing as well. I can't explain it, but I'm finding that I get into the flow much better when I'm alone and somewhere Remote and I'm trying to find that place again. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's because I've been writing at home. I go to the library a lot, but that was a really great experience. I, I'm trying to, I'm looking at to re- writers' retreats right now. But one of the problems I'm seeing with these writer retreats and these fellowships is they're, you know, three, four weeks long. And I just can't be away that long from my family. So that's one issue I have. But it would be nice <laughs> if I had, you know, if I was yeah. just by myself, I'd love that. But I, I'm not. I have other
0: people. And we're going to refer to both of the books since this is a trilogy and a little bit tease the third one. But I think you can pick up this book and just read Castles in the Air and then maybe go back. It would be nice if people picked that up first. But did you feel when you were writing it that you wanted it to be able to stand alone, somewhat on its own? Like, for instance, you can watch any one of the Star Wars trilogies, the originals, and you could pick right up and there's at least enough background. It Was that something you were conscious of?
1: No, no. I'm glad you said, though, that that is the case. I did not write the second book to be a standalone, but I am trying to do that with the third book. And so I'm glad that you said that about the second because I didn't consciously do that. So thank you, because it shows that maybe I managed the craft well enough that it wasn't redundant to try to explain everything that happened in the past to get the reader up to speed but I am really consciously trying to do it in the third book. And maybe because I'm consciously trying to do it, it's so hard. Um, it's really hard because I have to decide, especially in the third book, which characters to just get rid of because I have to introduce new ones. And I think it's just so complicating to bring in all these new people and you know have all the others that were in the one and two. And somebody just told me last night, they're reading Castles in the Air, and she really appreciated that I, at the beginning I had a list of the characters and an asterisk next to those that were fictional and those that weren't
0: yeah i love that yeah in books
1: yeah so i'm definitely going to do that in the third book as well because it is hard to keep up with all of the characters even when i read now i mean i'm sometimes that happens to me i'm like wait who is this person again why are yeah. they here and yeah so uh, i am trying to do the third book as a standalone and to do that i have to
0: get rid of some people <laughs> that are are in the murder your darlings as they say
1: yeah i gotta get rid of some people that are just extraneous to the current story
0: now in that first book I think they changed so much that that may be one reason that when I read the second book, it seemed to me as if they were all, they were so different. They'd matured and changed so much that you had to introduce who they were now as people back in America because they've been changed. We meet them in imaginary brightness. They're in London high society. They're ripped out of that and they're planted in upstate New York. This is very much a focus and a theme of the book. Castles in the Air sees the reverse for Ella. William, her brother, goes through some of his own changes. But we talked about your conflict over just how much time to spend in London in the first book, if you should handle it as flashbacks or if you should start a chapter there or you should start with them already in New York getting off that train at North Creek. Did you feel good here to be able to get back To London. And as a writer, as a human being (laughs) that worked a lot researching that stuff, was it nice to be able to get to use that sink your teeth into London society of this era?
1: Yes, I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed Ella's story more in the second book than William's story. I really kind of struggled with William's story. There were times where I was writing William's story because he was in the Adirondacks, as you said. And he's married now. He's got kids. He's got responsibilities. He's building his great camps. But still, you know, I, I enjoy writing about the Adirondacks, and I I know I. Did a pretty good job. The people that are reviewing it are saying so. But I really liked Ella's story because she was hanging out with these literary characters that I had to research and look up and and kind of learn about, you know. And these are people like you know Henry James and Annie Thackeray Ritchie, who she actually took a lot of the fairy tales and put them into a Victorian era style, you know, the Grimm's fairy tales. So she's famous for that. Cinderella is an example of what she did, and. You know, some of those other characters, Bram Stoker, and I really enjoyed learning about them. You know, um, Sarah Bernhardt, because Ella, from evidence that I found in the court documents when she was in a lawsuit with her brother, she was hanging out with Sarah Bernhardt's theater troupe. So that was really interesting for me was to kind of learn about this different society that I didn't know much about. And then juxtapose that with William's kind of much different life in the Adirondacks, where he wasn't really hanging out with the rich and famous at that point. He was more hanging out with his wife and the guides and other people and dealing with, you know, day-to-day problems of building a camp in the middle of the wilderness. So I really enjoyed writing the two, but I got to say, I really loved Ella's story.
0: Well, it comes through when I'm reading it. You know, I see this is something you're sinking your teeth into.
1: Right, right. And the whole thing with, again, I found in the court documents that when they sold the railroad, she inherited some money, you know, and then of course there's a dilemma there with this man that she meets the count in Paris and trusting him with her money. And that was really fun to write. I couldn't find much out about this count, but his name. So I had to make a lot of that up, which is always fun in historical fiction. You know, filling in the gaps sometimes is more fun than having to tell the truth.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they say it's so much easier to write the nonfiction stuff because you don't have to be true if you're just telling what really happened. But in fiction, it's a different challenge because you have to sound more believable because people think it's just made up. So that's. Uh, something with him clearly you wanted it to also not seem just stereotypical generic i think when you say count i mean here's an actual guy wearing a cape right so it it could easily seem a little bit farcical but i certainly didn't get that
1: yeah yeah he was a good you know a fun character to write about you know count de la sale so yeah it was good too for me because with the third book now i think you know when somebody reads the whole trilogy which eventually will happen Their lifestyle, what they were used to with the Durants, Ella and William in England really comes out in the second book because she's thrown back into it. She gets to go back and she gets to see these people that she had known, that she was friends with and that were family friends and sort of explore this literary lifestyle that she really wanted for herself. And, you know, I think that helps the story, move the story along, especially for the third book, because the third book is mostly, well, it's all in the United States, but you get a better sense as a reader about what they gave up by leaving Europe, leaving England in the second book.
0: So we talked a little bit there, so we might as well follow up with my question on count Gabriel de la Salle yeah. at your website, www.durantstory.com. And that's three W's two periods. Then what William West Durant is it?
1: Yeah. William West Durant.
0: Okay. So that's the www.durantstory.com. Yeah. And you have a blog post there titled lust, the familiar motivation. I'll ask you to answer the question that you posed there for your readers And that was, what do you think would cause a woman living in the late 19th century to give part of her inheritance to a man she hardly knew? I talked with you about this the first time because in historical fiction, when you write about somebody in the period, whether it's a woman, whether it's a child, whether it's a man or somebody who has outdated morals or mores, or there's racism, or there's just these casual things people did, there's violence of a kind that we recoil at today, In her case, Ella's 33, and you'd think today if you're a 33-year-old woman and you're unmarried, you're not a second-class citizen somehow. So answer this question for the modern reader. What do you think would cause a woman living in the 19th century to give part of her inheritance to this man?
1: Right. Well, what happened is I came up with my own idea, as the title says, lust. And I was at another talk, I was at a book event, and I was speaking about writing historical fiction. I was speaking to other authors in the audience and I posed the question. The women that were in the audience raised their hand and came up with very different answers than I did. Blackmail, I thought was one that, you know, was a good one. Somebody said blackmail. I never thought of blackmail. I don't know why. Maybe my mind just goes to sex. I don't know what's wrong with me. But when I was trying to come up with it, I thought, well, she had to have been in love or thought she was in love to give money away to somebody, to trust somebody, I really couldn't quite handle it any other way for me. Anyways, that's what I did. And the other thing is, again, in the court documents, I found some evidence that he enticed her a little bit with some jewels. And so I thought, you know, why would somebody give a woman, what was considered a spinster back then, jewels, unless he was trying to get her to like him or to, you know, seduce her. So that's why I decided to go with that angle. And I think it works. And, you know, I also was looking at the time period and what was happening with some of the people that Ella was, I want to say, in the same circles with. So Sarah Bernhardt is an example, who she was a famous actress, she made a lot of money. She was courted by the Prince of Wales, future King Edward. And she was in an abusive relationship, married some man who was abusive and it was a morphine addict. And some of the other stories that I found of other women in that time period, I saw the same thing. I mean, even her friend, Annie, who was from a famous literary family, you know, her father was William Thackeray. She was in a relationship from what I read, that wasn't exactly the greatest. Her husband was a philanderer. And, you know, I just wondered how many women were in those positions back then. And they didn't have a lot of power to do anything about it. So that's why I went with that angle. And I think it works. <laughs> uh, it worked for me. <laughs> the jury's out. We'll see what reviewers have to say. It's funny. I don't have a lot of reviews right now on Amazon and Goodreads. I'm waiting for people to review this book. And the four reviews I have are all from men who I don't know. I don't know any of these men. They're all five-star they have all mentioned the Adirondacks and how they love the story, William's story in the Adirondacks. And I've not heard any feedback about Ella's story. And I don't have very many UK writers either or readers. So I'd love to hear what some of the UK people think and people that live in England. So I'm hoping in the future to get more reviews and get more feedback. About that. Well, it's early, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. And I didn't send in I didn't send this book out to NetGalley. I didn't. I really didn't have time to try to promote it with a lot of places for reviews. I'm sort of doing that right now, and so you know, that's just the way it goes.
0: <laughs> Doctor Durant is gone in this, and I think when somebody dies, here's the big head of a household. He's. Still exerting some control here over the children, of course, and you have the wrangling his widow and her maid. And this is not a woman who's just sweeping, cleaning and bringing tea. She's a force in her own right. Or her presence is certainly a problem for the children to overcome William and Ella. Mm-hmm. They're all wrangling over the fortune. And as I was reading the book, I look for the strings. I wouldn't see them if I wasn't conscious of your hand there. But conflict is always so fun to write. It's key to any story. In fact, those early seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation – Gene Roddenberry had this idea there would be no conflict. We're actually recording this on the day, the 50th anniversary of Star Trek airing. So maybe that's why it's on my mind. Yeah. But it was impossible. The writer said such a challenge. I mean, they did it, but they said it was so hard to have this idea. You would never have conflict between human beings because that's just so the opposite of what we know things are like. And then as Roddenberry. As his health went down and he withdrew, they were able to have the stories of conflict and tell real human stories. Yeah. I found that in Castles in the Air, the writing was almost like The Sopranos, where nobody's ever saying what they really mean. That's how David Chase describes it. He says everybody's lying, all their dialogue. Nobody ever says the truth. Yeah. It's something that they all learn in this mafia family. That's great for a viewer. If you're watching the show, it's great for a reader. But as a writer, I imagine that that was a challenge because dialogue is one of the ways that we pass on information. And if you have people that are yeah. not saying <laughs> what they really mean, like Ella, you know, get, try to get a straight word out of her about what she thinks about lunch. You know, I mean, the poor girl is so, you know, has a foot on her whole life. <laughs> so how did you meet that challenge of making meaning clear, even when the dialogue necessarily has to be hit?
1: Well, okay, so thinking about that, you know, in the Sopranos example, so they're all trying to hide something. They're all kind of suppressing the information that they're in a mafia family, right? And that's their survival tactic is suppression of that information in order to just survive their own personal problems or not letting the world know how they're making their money. And I mean, if you think about this family and the time period, especially... That's really what they had to do, is lie their way to making money. And we, in this society today, we're so all about everyone being so authentic. And, you know, put your heart on your sleeve and explain things and tell people. And, you know, even I do this on my blog. You know, I'm telling people about this writing experience and how hard it is. But back then, and even now, there is some value to hiding information or keeping things to yourself to some degree, not letting everyone know everything. And so when I was writing the book, I was thinking... Especially Hannah was brought up in England. And, you know, having a husband like Dr. Durant, who had been scrutinized by the press and governments coming after him, you know, they know he lied about how how he made his money on the transcontinental line. And she had to learn how to keep things to herself, right? so that she could protect the family. And I think there's a line in there, I don't know if you remember, where William is coming to her because Huntington, Collis Huntington, the guy that's the head of the um, Central Pacific, is trying to feel William out for some information that he needs, right, about those files. Mm -hmm. When William goes to his mother about it, what does she say? She says, if I learned anything from your father, it is to hold the best card in your hand until the end of the game. Right, I do remember. That kind of summarizes that family and their dynamic was you don't tell everybody everything you're doing because if you do, you're going to get caught (laughs) and you're going to get in trouble. We have to maintain this facade in order to maintain our lifestyle, which is very similar to *The Sopranos, right? So when you're writing that, you kind of have to put in the hints that there's something going on underneath, but that the way of them protecting themselves is to hide it. I think I do a pretty good job of doing that. I mean. It was very hard to unravel a little bit what William did, especially when his father died and he was in command then of the estate because back then I found too that it was very common for men to put items of value in their, their wives' names, right, so that they could hide the assets and that's what he did. Again, it's this hiding that he did. But I did explain that, I thought, pretty well because that was a thing I think the reader had to understand was that he just started in, just like his father did, doing whatever he could. I guess back then, maybe they didn't consider it deceitful. (laughs) It does come back to haunt him
0: later. My guest is Sheila Myers, and the book is Castles in the Air, a Durant Family Saga, the follow-up to Imaginary Brightness, and the second book in the trilogy. You can follow her on Twitter at Sheila M. Myers, or visit her online at that website we talked about, www. www.durantstory.com. And I hope people will, if they read it, go to Amazon. You just heard the cry for help there. Talk about not putting everything into your dialogue, saying she hasn't gotten many reviews from women. So I hope that ladies will support their fellow women writers, that they'll like the book enough that they'll want to do that. The phrase, Castles in the Air, comes from two sources. One you mentioned, Bram Stoker, his Dracula. The other, Henry David Thoreau's Walden. So what did you want to invoke with this title?
1: Yeah, so I... I've come to find out this title's been overused, unfortunately. It's everywhere. If you Google it, you know, on Amazon or wherever, it's you know everywhere. There's so many people using that title. But actually, what made me pick that title originally was I was reading The Gilded Age by Mark Twain. And in the Gilded Age, he doesn't say castles in the air exactly, and I'd have to find the exact quote, but he says something about my air castles have fallen apart, the main character who loses everything from over-speculation on land. And when I was reading that I thought oh my gosh that's a really great saying and then it kind of turned into castles in the air and I found these other quotes from Thoreau specifically who talks about it's okay to build castles in the air as long as you have the foundation under them and I think that's a really apt analogy for what William's problem is is that he's a big visionary a big thinker but he never really had the foundations including the support of his father for what he wanted to do as an artist similarly Ella had the same issue. She took off to London, hung out with the literary, set, wrote, published, but she never really had the support of her family. And eventually, you know, she's starting to run out of money as well. So that's the key thing to having these visions and these castles in the air. It's okay, but you have to be able to support it. And I just happened upon the Bram Stoker quote. I don't know how, but I stumbled on it and I kind of liked it. So I actually I think because I was reading Dracula, I've been reading a lot of these old books, dialogue and language. And so I think I saw it there and I was like, oh, this must have been a really popular term back then, (laughs) castles in the air.
0: So, maybe we will see vampires in the Adirondacks from you at some point. Yeah. <laughs> it's getting into your brain. But uh, I found it interesting yeah. as you were talking about that, that even castles in the air have a mortgage and you have to pay them. Yeah. This is something William could have done well to remember. And right. you see this relationship with the father. Dr. Durant is such a titanic figure. He's holding sway over his wife and children, even from beyond the grave. And the money is just one way. Mm -hmm. Discuss how much of that you were able to base on the actual family dynamic, because I know you read a lot of court papers. I know there were some pages missing. I believe it was in one of the diaries. But this is a real dynamic. Again, Sopranos, you know, look at Livia Soprano. If people are familiar with the show, most people I'm sure are. And she just has that power over everybody. Right. And you have one scene in the book that maybe you'd like to describe. It's a scene with a pig or a series of scenes, I guess, a progression, a relationship. And I wondered if you were trying to evoke the relationship with the father there and how that came to you, if so.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. So to answer your question. No, I didn't consciously, again, I did not consciously do that. You always find metaphors in my language, especially with animals. To answer the question about Dr. Durant, he did hold a lot of sway over them in the future and in the court documents, and this will come out more in the third book, they really use his reputation as a tyrant, as a father, to kind of persuade the jury and the, the general public about why they were the way they were, The Ella and William. You know, it's like blaming the father for everything kind of thing. You know, it's like going to the psychologist and saying, you know, the reason I'm the way I am is because my mother or my father did this to me. And they do that in the court documents. But with the pig story, I'm glad you like the pig story. That story just sort of came to me because there's so many tall tales in the Adirondacks. I've been steeped in these books set in the Adirondacks that are oral histories from people that lived there from like the 1850s into 1960s, especially I found oral histories. And the stories that people tell are just, they're so interesting. And, and that's why when I put William's story together in the Adirondacks, I included tall tales that I made up. I made them up. The only story that's not made up in there is the one where his boat gets scuttled. And it actually did. His buttercup, his steamboat got scuttled on Long Lake and it was scuttled by the guides because they didn't want any more tourists coming in and hotels they wanted their own tourists. The guides, of course, made their money from people from New York and Boston that came, and then they guide them through the Adirondacks for hunting. But they didn't want William's tourist business and hotels, and they felt it was taking business away from them. And he also had dammed up a trout creek so that he could dock his boat, and they didn't like that either. So I found in oral history, this woman had written a book about, it's actually called Tall Tales in the Adirondacks. And she uh, went back and and relayed that story as well. And he actually defied the town council had said, you know, you cannot dam this creek for your boat, your steamboat. And he just defied them and did it anyways. So that's probably why I wrote those stories, like the pig story and the raccoon story that shows up in there about the raccoon attacking the cook. Because these things, well, they probably they did happen. A lot of strange things happened. And I thought, I'm going to make my own tall tales up just to make the story interesting. So it had nothing to do with Dr. Durant, though, the pig. <laughs> or just a story.
0: So, yeah. Here, I thought I was such an insightful reader. I was really going to get some praise here from the author. I
1: read your question and I thought, oh, no, should I make it up and tell him that? Yes, <laughs> but no, I'm not going to do that. But yeah, that's interesting. You know, you never know though when you're writing, if you are doing something unconsciously. And so maybe you picked up on something I hadn't picked up on.
0: Well, you're very kind.
1: Yeah. <laughs> for
0: these hunters and trappers that you're speaking about in the Adirondacks, this is very much a period of change for them. And I like that about this period, about the Gilded Age everything is changing. There's one of those things where you get to a period and there's nowhere you can really sit and say, okay, uh, this is going to be the same even five years from now. This is a period of great change right now in our country and in the world at large. Look back 15 years ago to 9-11. Today, everybody would be standing there with their phones aiming up. That's just one example. There was no Twitter, no Facebooking. These are all (laughs) relatively new things that are just ubiquitous now, and that's only 15 years ago. So for these hunters and trappers, they're – making their living at this this is not something like just social media or just something that's a smartphone this is a period of change and it threatens their livelihood it threatens literally their ability to eat and to earn a living so describe how that impacts castles in the air the story that you wanted to tell and what research did you do into that transition
1: That's great. Yes. There's some really good histories about the Adirondack and land use policy that I read. And all of those sources are actually on my website. I've listed numerous sources of books. There's a great one by Phil Terry called The Contested Terrain. And what happened is when New York State basically declared the park a park and a preserve, it really started this land scramble And the people that had money started setting up these preserves, these big 1,000 acres, over 1,000 acre preserves, hunting preserves, so that they could keep others out. And so you went from a lifestyle for these hunters and trappers where they could go wherever they wanted, and it was all just, you know, it wasn't necessarily state-owned land, but nobody was guarding the land up there. no one was paying attention to who owned what because most of the land was owned by lumber companies, big companies that just raped the land and left. They didn't have any other interest in it. So then when you had people like the Rockefellers and you know the Durants and the others come along and set up these in the Adirondack League and some of the clubs, the men's clubs that got started, When they started posting the land and having keep out and guarding and penalizing poachers, and it just changed everything for these hunters and trappers that were used to going and ranging wherever they wanted. So I had to show that because what's interesting about that especially is in the United States and in New York State at the time, we weren't used to that, right? So what in England and Europe, that was what William especially was used to. So where William came from, that's really what the aristocracy did. The landowners did. They had their land posted. You couldn't poach on their land. It was their deer that you were hunting, their fish that you were going after. And then he moves into this wilderness where that wasn't the case. And then he's going through and seeing this transition happen. So I had to kind of wonder how he felt about it. Was he happy it was happening? Happy is probably not the best word, but was he thinking this is good, or was he more on the side of these people, the trappers and the guides who were, you know, to some degree, he had an affinity for these men. And I found that documented about his life, that he was very well liked by the people that worked for him. And he cared a lot about the people that worked for him. So I had a kind of struggle with how would he react to these changes That's why I have that one scene at Delmonico's where they're talking about the men and the men's clubs are talking about, what do we do up in the Adirondacks? And he kind of wavers, you know, he's riding the fence on the issue. Should the state take over the land or should it be in private control? And that's really what was going on at the time. It was a real struggle for the people living up there as well. And to some degree, it still is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: I wanted to mention something about the Widow Durant too. And her daughter, Ella, and also William and Ella, because she does make that trip to London early in the book. And as a writer, I can see you saying that's going to make all the interactions that much harder, because unlike the smartphones and social media that we just talked about, Ella not only has to write letters that will take forever to get there and back, but her mother, that maid that I mentioned, is in the way. She's going to be opening the letters and reading them to her and editing them down. And so this is this must have been a challenge for you. You had that scene in Imaginary Brightness where Ella's packing. And I love that her mother's trying to tell her, you're going up to the woods. You're not going to Piccadilly Circus. You're not going to some ball with a count. And so you won't need these beautiful evening gowns. This is a limitation that you had to deal with. That you had to write around. So what was that like? What did you do to try to concentrate on being able to have those conflicts, even though it's over letters and long distance?
1: Yeah. So, well, what's interesting is, again, this court case had all of these letters as evidence. And I'm really interested to know, maybe somebody else that's a historian out there can answer this and and pipe in and comment. There are all these letters brought in as evidence. And what I couldn't figure out is how these were saved. So I had, as evidence, William would produce these letters that he had actually written to Ella, okay? Or that the woman you're talking about, Margaret, who's Hannah, her mother's companion, who was intercepting her mail. You know, there'd be letters that Margaret wrote to Ella and they show up in the court documents, but they were evidence against Ella. They were used as evidence against her. One letter is from Margaret saying, you know, you really shouldn't be accepting jewels from the Count." So what I couldn't figure out is how that came into evidence, because I I thought to myself, why would Ella be providing that as evidence against herself? Did they copy on carbon back then when they wrote letters? I can't figure that part out. And then I'd love to know, like, where did all these letters go? Are they sitting in some state archive somewhere? But that's really how I had to do it, because that's how people communicated back then was these letters. And they show in the letters, is, you know, you just can sense all the tension in the letter. People wrote, you know, uh, why are you doing this? And I'm getting a lawyer. And I can't believe you don't trust your brother. And all of these things were in these letters that were presented at the trial. And so then I would just have Ella or William reading the letter. And of course, there's a scene where, you know, William wants to burn a letter he gets from Ella. Another one where Ella actually does take a letter and she crumples it up and throws it in the fire. So I had to use letters because that's really what it was. That's where the communication was and how the story evolved. And hopefully people don't mind that too much, that there is that kind of writing style in there because it's not really direct dialogue, like you said it's letters, you know, but that's really, that's the way people communicated. And then there was only two times where William and Ella really confront each other in the book. Did you notice that when he comes over? To- yeah. Yeah. And that's true. I mean, I couldn't make up another time when he was over there because it was like a six week journey and, yeah. and money and he had a family. So that's how I handled that. I, I use the letters as the way to build the tension.
0: It's a tool really that are multiple tools that they also inherit from their fathers. And it's if you watch somebody get in a car that's never driven a car before, they've seen the pedals and they know they do something, have some connection to the car moving, and they know the wheel is kind of self-explanatory. But none of them are as good at manipulating the actions of those in their family and the action of those around them and sort of running this whole elaborate orchestra, conducting everybody and bringing them along. So I found that something really fascinating. And for you, writing it, I think it's a real accomplishment because you have to keep all that straight in your head. It would be very easy to have William write a letter that's straightforward, that advances the plot and just says things flat out, but that wouldn't be true to the characters. So you really seem like you concentrated on that and get them to be flawed characters, which is all the more compelling.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, William definitely has this blind spot, right? He's got this moral blind spot part of it was just his upbringing where he's expecting his sister to toe the line and do what he says and be upstanding woman and and act the spinster role and and be a companion or or whatever those traditional roles were. And he doesn't really appreciate the fact that she wants to have this life as a, a literary figure. And I think there's a conflict for him. I think he appreciates that this is something that she could or should do. But the other side of him is that man side at the time was this isn't what she should be doing because this is wrong. You know, this is not what women do. Women shouldn't be authors and they shouldn't be hanging out with theater people. And and plus, it was going to cost him more money, you know, because he had to support her. So he definitely I think he has that conflict and maybe because they were away and apart from each other they grew more distant, and it was easier for him to justify some of his actions against her. You know, it would be one thing if she was living in the same town, and they shared the same friends like they used to when they lived in England together. But when she left, probably was much easier for him to justify his actions. And so I only had what I could parse together from the court testimony about what happened during that time period. There was a couple newspaper articles in the Tribune in the Herald, I think is, is the Herald, that paper's long gone, I'm sure. But I found some articles because they were in um, this court battle, they were trying to persuade the public to their side, Ella and William both. So I found some articles that filled in the blanks for me about what Ella was doing in England, because she interviewed with the press and explained to them, what did I do over in England? This is what I was doing. I was writing, I I became a nurse, on and on. I married, you know, so-and-so. So because I didn't have anything else to go with besides the letters and not much on her, to be honest. So
0: uh, The New York Herald?
1: Yeah, it would be the New York Herald right. and the Tribune. I think it was the Tribune where I found some articles and Times, yeah, and, and New York Times as well. So those archives are awesome. I mean, it's just so great now that there's everything is digitized. Like we were talking about earlier um, when you were talking about your research. It just makes such a huge difference to have access to this material.
0: Yeah. Libraries are great when they have what you want, but I went today to a library and my efforts were frustrated. And you know, looking at the microfilm on the old machine, it's the same one probably from when I was in the seventies in grade school, learning to use it. And I really found more on my computer at my wife, luckily through the genealogy does ancestry.com and has newspapers.com. And I'm lucky enough as working in radio to have a nice big news archive that I can tap on. So it's amazing what you can find.
1: One thing though about those microfiche that I discovered because I used that same machine over in England when I was in cows, I was searching the records office about the yachts and what yachts were coming in and out. You have all this yachting and all this, uh, you know, these aristocrats hanging out and parties and balls. So I was in there and they don't have, they do have things digitized, but the guy that I was dealing with stuck me on this microfiche machine. And what happened is I got so absorbed with other stories You know, like Mm -hmm. all of a sudden I'm reading about like weddings that were happening on the Isle of Wight. They would say who brought what and what they did. And so then you get a a sense of the time period, which I don't think you really do when you're just zeroing in on one particular article. Oh, this is the article I need. I'm going to read this only. When you're doing that microfiche, some of the headlines catch you, you know, you pick up on all this other gossip, (laughs) (laughs) this outlier stuff that really, you know, you don't necessarily need, but it does definitely gives you a sense of the time period.
0: Well, I just sent you while we were talking the picture of the microfiche machine because, of course, I was taking a picture of it because it looked so old and so cool. And yet when you're trying to actually use it, it's very frustrating. So we could continue those conversations, I guess, off the air. But I'll wrap up here with one last question so we don't give the whole book away. That's with another compliment for you. That I got off the train in Hoboken and I was holding imaginary brightness and, you know, bookmarking it with my finger as you do. And I felt there was only maybe 30 pages left. And I had that feeling of sadness. You know, you feel that stab of dread that, oh gosh, this book is almost over. And I thought I have to tell you that. And I have to share that with people for whatever small weight my review might carry that it was that enjoyable. And I was that into it that I was sorry to realize that the book was almost over. But I can console myself by saying that there is a third book coming after Imaginary Brightness and Castles in the Air. So tell me, how long do you think we'll have to wait before book three? And do you have a title for that one yet?
1: Yes, I do have a title. Thank you. And the title, again, is based on a piece of literature. It's a poem by Rudyard Kipling called The Night is Done. And that's the title of the third book. So I'm about a third of the way through a draft of the third book. I have an outline. I decided to use an outline approach this time. And I'm going to be working with a group at a local writer's organization here to work through the first part of my manuscript. The narrative structure is interesting. So it's a little more of a challenge. And I think it's going to take me a couple of years to get this out. I was thinking of pitching it to an agent and trying to get it traditionally published again as like a standalone book. And I haven't decided whether to do that or not. But the narrative style or structure is that William, and this is all true, when he was about 83 years old, he went and met with Harold Hoschild. And Harold Hoschild owned a copper mining company, a very large one. His father had bought the last of the Durant property in the Adirondacks. It's still there. It's called Eagle's Nest, your Eagle Nest. And in reality, Harold was writing a history of the Adirondack region And William, I found documentation that indicates William went and met with Harold at his um, home at Eagle Nest. And I'm starting the story there when William's 83 telling his life story. So that's what I'm doing. And I'm having Ella also tell her life story to Pulteney Bigelow, because I found evidence that when she was about 78, she went to meet Pulteney and he was about 78 as well. So I'm working it, I don't know if it's gonna work or not, but I'm trying this approach. So you have a narrator who's telling a story about somebody else, like a biographer, but then you have a first person account of the person telling the story. It's very challenging, but I thought I'd give it a try.
0: Well, Sheila Myers, thank you so much for bringing the Durants back for book two and joining me a second time here on the History Author Show. Best of luck with Castles in the Air and however many years it does take to finish book three in the trilogy. I know it'll be just as high a standard as the first two books. I hope you'll join me again on the show when that comes out. Best of luck with Castles in the Air and best of luck in your writers group. Thank you. you. Again, the book is Castles in the Air A Durant Family Saga Book 2 in Sheila Meyer's trilogy of this fascinated Gilded Age family As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at HistoryAuthor.com And we hope you will click through there Amazon.com gives us a few cents on every purchase you make and it doesn't cost your bottom line anything extra And by the way Sheila Myers has a special running until the end of the month of September. So if you're listening before the end of the month, you can get a copy of Castles in the Air on Kindle for just 99 cents. And if you're hearing this after the 1st of October, well, the book is still very much worth it, and you'll probably want to pick up the first book as well. Once again, thanks to Sheila Myers for joining us a second time. Follow her on Twitter, at Sheila M. Myers, or visit her at that website, www.durantstory.com And remember, let us know what you think of the book and the interviews on Twitter at History Dean. And one thing about Facebook, by the way, we have a listener named Brenda Sue Chang, and she shares not just the posts of the books and the interviews, But the old pictures I put up there had a great one of Orson Welles tapping into a beer keg, for instance. Just great stuff, fun stuff. I just wanted to thank her on the air for all of her support of the History Author Show. And if anybody wants to leave a review on iTunes or forward Facebook, I really do notice those things, and everybody here appreciates it. Well, it sounds like the train is pulling into the station just ahead. I hope you'll join us next Monday morning for another trip into the past here on iHeartRadio or wherever you're listening. Thanks so much for time-traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys Oh, New York ain't New York anymore